Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. Today we have a very special episode. We are talking with Krista New. Krista New is a photographer and photo editor for Lehigh University. She serves on the board of Healing Through the Arts, a nonprofit organization that provides information and resources to encourage and support healing to individuals, caregivers, and their families. Prior to Lehigh, she was a photo director and editor at Organic Gardening, Rodale Publishing's flagship brand, and a photo editor at TV Guide. She holds her MA in Illustration Photography from Syracuse University, Newhouse School of Public Communications, and her BA in History from Alfred University. Krista, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, I am super excited. The first time that I met you was at the symposium at Lehigh University. Oh, yes, Critical Lens. Yeah, and you were the teaching artist on Polaroid-style photography. Yeah, instant cameras. Yeah. Yes. I love that um, when when I'm not at work, I sometimes try to live a tactile as if it is 1993 life. Sure. So when I go on vacation, I will tend to take some form of instant camera and yeah. try to put my screens down. And we talk a lot about how... You have an instant camera in your pocket, in your phone. You can take 10,000 pictures in one setting, but but that's not what instant photography really is. You have to think about what you're trying to say or you're going to burn through $100 worth of film, right, before you take the picture. And so it's kind of, oh, you'll tweak this to the left or you'll move this shadow. But with an instant photo, if it's kind of like, oh, I don't like how that sign is aligned, like what are you going to do with 19 almost lined up diner picture signs, sure, right? Except, sure, Right? <laughs> so I, I think... It's a cool workshop, especially to do with the art gallery, because you're working with a lot of people who kind of have a device in their hands every moment of the day. And it kind of gets you to put that down and interact with this tactile thing. And it may or may not come out, but you sure. don't know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that idea of bringing more purposeful thought into it. It's not maybe one of these will turn out. It's I'm taking the time to think about what exactly I want to say and putting it on putting it on something tactile. And and it may not be perfect or yeah. I mean it's the kind of that way with lots of forms of art, right? Where if you're trying to make a painting and you can get very frustrated, but you have to kind of let yourself make the painting that you're making sure. and not the thing that you are locked on in your head, right? You kind of yeah. have to unclench and let go. Totally. Um, and I I have used it actually with mentoring students, the instant cameras as icebreakers. Yeah. More people are familiar with the cameras now, but a couple of years ago, especially if you're not an art major, um, they'll come into a room and the first person will have them take a picture of the next person that comes in the room. Yeah. And then there's a teaching element. They have to show each other how to use the camera. And I think even that day at the workshop, because there's lens parallax and all these things. Yeah. So you think it's going to line up, um, which can be frustrating. But then also you can get some really cool, happy accidents. And I think there are, there's like a million life lessons in that. Yeah. You know, if you accident, especially with those cameras from that workshop, if you they're so trigger sensitive yeah. and you can accidentally push it. But sometimes you're from the hip shot is much better than the thing you were trying. Yeah. 
to yeah. frame up. It feels like you're shooting medium format with it because it's really hard to look through the viewfinder and they shoot from the hip and I just love the images that they can get from it. They're almost more beautiful yeah. than, uh, and I, I do have an instant camera problem. I have yeah. many different <laughs> um, kinds. I, I love the ones that let you do double exposure yeah. in camera. Um, because you have to think about the negative spaces in what you're looking at and where they might line up. And, and you, again, the happy accidents are sometimes the coolest. Sure. But I, I think since so much of my day job, we need a thing that might be a cover try or we need something that could go out into the world that really helps with reputation or whatever. And, and it's really easy to get locked in to striving for technical perfection yeah. and so it's kind of like quads and hamstrings because if you're not playing and being creative still you're not you're not bringing something into that day sure, job sure and so when you're playing with these cameras just tell the students oh this could be the worst picture you've ever taken who cares right yeah. so yeah what what would you say about using photography as a community building device in general I think it's a really valuable tool, especially when you have when you're skilled as a photographer. Yeah. Um, sometimes people can see that in the most literal of of ways, kind of right. Like, come take pictures at this charity tournament or, sure. or something like that. Sure. But and and that's a great thing. But the camera itself and if you, if you know how to use it and if you're sharing that knowledge is one form of building community um i think when they say like taking a picture right that can feel transactional like sure. you're taking something sure. from someone but what i learned especially when we were in the lockdown part of the pandemic there were a few different students that were on campus that were not heading home um because international travel and it might be hard to get back. So they would just be sitting in their rooms. Um, one of them was working on music. And so I had this idea if I was on campus doing my photo shoots of people from 10 feet away outside on the greenway in yeah. the air, um, in between these shoots, I would just reach out to students that I had met before and say, 20 minutes, anything you want, it's not for work, it's for you. And wear what you want to wear. You can use it for anything. And 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 it became a way of weirdly listening to people's stories, right? Because you're there with yeah. your camera. And they might explain why they chose the outfit they wanted or how they their mom had sent them this package in the mail sure. from Africa. Yeah. And they'd be excited to show you this thing that came home from a care package or... Um, it didn't matter almost what the end result of the photo was. It was that you were using the camera as a way of storytelling or letting someone tell their story. So you weren't just taking the picture. Great. That's great for the magazine or a social media post. Sure, it was sure. more like, I have the tool to help you tell your story. And so it, it became a way of, of giving back in those instances. Very cool. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the use of portrait photography as it pertains to self-expression. Oh, yeah. 
It's interesting because a lot of the, my favorite portraits that I take yeah. are the ones that end up feeling like they're a collaboration between the person, yeah. uh, both people yeah. on the sides of the camera. Yeah, so. um, when I worked at a magazine 10 million years ago in New York City, <laughs> uh, the portraits there, it was really interesting because it's celebrities, right? So you would you would have a list of people that the person would be photographed by or a list of stylists or this is the side you could photograph the person on. Sure. And it's a very, like, that was my first exposure to somebody curating their image. Yeah. And then when you have how the world has changed so much and you can have the selfie on your camera and everything and you can kind of curate your image. And sometimes it's hard to build the trust with the person of like, let's just see what we can get to sure. together. So with those pictures that I was doing during the lockdown, it's like, this is not for Instagram unless it's you want it for your Instagram, right? This is just for me and you. Yeah. And then... I kind of took that concept and um, now if I take a present to a friend's house or something, I'll take a Polaroid with expired film, like intentionally expired film. You don't know yeah. how it's going to come out. And yeah. especially on the new Polaroid model, sometimes that film can take like 20 minutes before the picture really comes in. And I'll be like, this is for me and you. I'm going to take two frames. One's for you. One's for me. We're not posting it anywhere. It's just for 30 years from now, we can look back and be like, here's this day of just me and you. And I have gotten some of the most amazing expressions from just having this tactile thing that isn't meant to, to be a curated Im yeah. image. Um, so I, I'm kind of trying to figure out how do you translate that into like freelance portraits or portraits, right? Sure. Because there's something there where it's like, how do you build that connection where it's not transactional, like I'm taking something from you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's such a big part of what makes good photographers good photographers is even if they don't know how to effectively communicate what it is, it just happens and they can do it. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think a thing... I think I think that helps me. Everybody's different. We all have sure, our different styles. Sure. I think I am incredibly informal and chaotic and ish. And I don't like routines or or um, regimens or any anything like that. And I think that that can make some of the very type A people in my life incredibly nervous and uncomfortable. And I think that it does help me make connections with the people I encounter to take portraits of. Sure. Um, my favorite thing, actually, I don't do a ton of family and kid photography, but I find it a refreshing break when I do. So little kid's going to be so honest with you. They're going to be like, nope, I'm not doing this. Right. And, and you kind of move around or you might, I do like, I take people on like a 15 minute walk when I'm doing those portrait sessions, because it's kind of like, oh, we'll walk and play a little or show me your toy. Take a couple pictures oh, let's do one of everyone together, right? And then yeah. walk and you move them around. And then if you can get to that moment where this little two-year-old is going to just give you a little bit of who they actually are, it's like the best feeling in the world. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I did a lot of wedding photography Ooh, uh, you're back brave. in the day. I and I was never a big fan of it. <laughs> 
to me, that I, seems like the most stressful thing because you can't it, redo it. It is. I, I get so stressed about it. And I have a really difficult time with portrait photography. Whenever I put a person in the frame, I really struggle. I, yeah. I love doing like snapshots of scenes, not as much traditional landscape photography, but I love um, photo documentation of things like neon signs, which are a challenge in themselves. Um, and just general scenes that pop in my head, whether I'm curating them and creating them or whether I am What's your going hardest out and taking them. color of neon to photograph? Um, like turquoise yeah. is generally the hardest for me. It's, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, and then for me, just in general, sometimes yellow. Yeah. Yeah, yellow is not an easy, especially with the way that it re reflects off the glass yeah. if it's behind a glass window or something. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yellow can be super hard. I have that same obsession with neon neon signs yeah. and things that used to be. And um, so my undergrad degree is in history. Yeah, but it wasn't like the history of the people who won the wars. It was like the history of counterculture movements or literary circles or. Like, what did the women on the home front in World War II do when they went to jobs? And what was that like when you were earning money and that went away when people came? That kind of history. So I spent a lot of time sort of immersed in 20th century things. And so, like, an old diner with a neon sign that still exists yeah. is like time capsule. Totally. How would you say that studying that impacted your your craft? I think, so I started out with history, but I was always digging into the photos. I think, I think it started when I was studying the WPA, yeah, um, the Works Project Administration. And he was like, it's like, oh my gosh, the world was falling apart. And then these people went out with cameras to tell the stories, to try, well, it was a way of employing artists, but it's also, right? And at the same time, that's the era that my grandparents got married in 1939, just after the Depression and stuff. And how even when I was a kid, was that like 60-some years later, you could see how this one era of history affected like everything who they became. Yeah. Also, I'm... My parents were both younger than all their older siblings. So it seemed like a lot of life had already happened and people had died and gone by the time that I got on the scene. So I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's pouring over the photo albums and hearing the stories about the people like I would never meet. But I can tell you like amazing stories about these people. And then I'm weird because I would always be staring in the corners of the photos at like the way the logo on the soda can or bottle changed or the bottle size changed. Yeah. So I think from like a really early age, like the relatives who are left telling you the stories, the artifacts that they left behind, that's like a huge thing for me. Like I have this undone still life project in the back of my head. Um, I've, I've become the keeper of a lot of family objects as people downsize or clean things out. And my dad gave me the pipe lighter and old tobacco can that was his father's who died when I was 10 months old of lung cancer. So I'm like, I'm holding the murder weapons of my grandfather. Oh my goodness. But wouldn't that be some amazing like port portrait series? Yeah. But it's like, 
of the artifacts that we save of people, right? So I think that's how my undergrad degree, I kind of led to it because you're trying to puzzle where you came from by the stories of the people who came before you. And then... um, I don't like a we in a weird way. You're looking at piecing together your family history of people you will never know, yeah. and kind of looking at history to kind of figure out what their world was and why they made the choices they made. Um, and then while I was doing history, I would always be in the photos, like the WPA photos, or let me do another independent study about this photographer or how they chronicled protest in the 1960s or how, right? And then the photographers who do kind of in the spirit of Walker Evans, but there's every five years another photographer who does, right? That sort of like what buildings have stayed as the world has changed around it. when people pack up and just leave. Yeah. So if you die and leave things behind or or if, if a place becomes abandoned, like when Bethlehem Steel closes, yeah. but then there's these pockets of things that just stay, yeah. that's fascinating to oh, me. Yes. Ta- it's like a time capsule. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of the things that got me really into photography, I was a film major in college um, with photography is something that I was doing freelance on the side just to help me get some money. And I still love movies, still love watching them, still love being in pre-production of them. But I've been way more drawn to the photography side recently. When I I first came across a, I think it was 1890 to 1970s book from Life Magazine. And it was just all of these photos of important moments through that time and looking through it it was a book that was printed in the 70s and it had that awesome tactile old paper feel and going through seeing the faded photos just oh my goodness it was incredible and seeing the influence that photography had and our our ability to document these things over time it's a mostly believable record i mean even even before photoshop you would have the people way back in the day that would um, make like the fake fairy photos that were right, but it's a mostly, it's such a, it's a such an easy way to sh- make a shorthand record yeah. uh, of your of your world. I think that's why the snapshots always fascinated me because it's like this is life happening and nobody moved the Ruffles potato chip bag from. <laughs> from the corner of the table because it was just or when you had film too you have 24 or 36 exposures so that might have like a year or more of events on one thing before somebody would get it developed yeah i i shoot a lot of 35 millimeter myself and i always get disappointed when i get something back from wherever I got it developed at. And they're like, oh, yeah, like three-fourths of these turned out great. Two of them, like nothing turned out. And I'm like, oh, I just lost like three and a half months of photos that I waited patiently to take and figure out and then send off. And, oh, my goodness. It's, oh, it's so bright. And, and that idea of not being able to see. So when I was in grad school, we yeah. had wet lab we were, digital was just starting to be a, a thing. Um, but when I was in grad school at Newhouse, which is Syracuse University Public Communications, um, I got from a MQ camera in Syracuse, I got somebody's old Hasselblad 
500C. Wow. And and it came with two film bags. And then I used a pathetically large chunk of my student loan check that semester to get this 180 <laughs> portrait lens that was almost three times the length of this oh Hasselblad body. But I would shoot with this Hasselblad and it's like the 120 film and you would just get so many pictures. And I would always drag my brother out to be the model in these pictures. I should actually show you that. Pic I, I will give you that picture for, for, for this if you want so people can see what I'm talking about. But... Um, 12 frames. My brother is an artist, right? Can draw, can paint, can do neon, can build furniture. He's wow. he's an industrial sculptor in the car industry for his career. So he's like an artist. And he's also my little brother. So I would arrange him in front of, I would, oh, it's called Floyd Creaser's Quality Used Cars. It had this okay. great painted, painted sign. And he had this white undershirt on and I was this black and white film. And I would arrange him and then I'd walk back to the camera on the tripod and he would have rearranged himself as how, because he's like a true artist. And it got, it would get to the point where I would almost want to be like, mom, right? I'm in my 20s in grad school. <laughs> like, mom, he's not doing my thing. So there was this one moment where I'm hand holding the camera at this point. And there's just like few frames on that square. It's like 12 or 16 frames on a roll. Yeah. And he turned his head for one second and I said, freeze. And I took this frame and it was the last one on the roll. There's a film clip in the top because it was that it was almost like that extra frame you sometimes get. Yeah. So it's a film clip from the hangar. And it's the one frame where when he turned his head, there's a slight break between the light and the shadow yeah. um, on the wall behind him. So my eye saw something that my brain wasn't processing, but something in me said, freeze. Yeah. And then when I unrolled the film, also when you process your own black and white film, I would always unroll it before it was fully fixed just to get a sneak peek yeah. at like, do I have anything on here or not? <laughs> right. So you unroll it and roll it and you get to the end and you're like, oh my gosh, it's the only frame that it's like that, wow. right? Yeah. And so I guess that's, I've come a long way in building connections with the people I'm taking pictures of. I don't yell at people for mom um, <laughs> like I did with my brother in that. But um, but I, th I think that that theme of kind of letting your heart or your eye see something and go with it instead of trying to control something with your brain carries through with, pretty much every way I try to take a picture. Yeah. We've talked about a couple different points in your life and your career. And I'd love I'd love for you to take people through kind of like a, a chronological order of uh, of your photography career. Okay, so my first photography uh, things were as a kid in the 70s. Um, if you handed me the camera, I would decapitate you, not on purpose, but I, I would then aim the camera. It, it turned out much later I needed glasses for distance. Oh, so that yeah. perhaps was in a play. But if you wanted everyone in the frame, you would actually hand the camera to my younger brother <laughs> to take the picture. So um, that, uh, and then fast forward to fifth grade, I got a 110 disc cam or a 110 film cartridge camera for Christmas. And that was my greatest engineering feat was when I lost the cover that held the batteries in. And I realized that if I taped a paperclip, it would make a contact 
to make the flash still work. Yeah. So, um, but for the math thing, I probably could have been a pretty good engineer. Um, <laughs> and so I would take little snapshots around the house. And um, my mom was good at taking snapshots in life. And then my, my grandma knew had all of the photo albums from all the decades before me. So I think I had things to kind of sub unconsciously study, right, with this storytelling. Um, when I was in high school, I took photo as, as my art class option. And I didn't like the homeroom I was in. So you could be on the yearbook homeroom. And I'm like, oh, I took this photo class. So I ended up being the yearbook photo editor. Now I graduate, I go off to college, and I am never going to take a picture again. I'm done. I'm over it. I'm going to write. I'm going to be a writer on the school newspaper. And then one day someone didn't show up to do the picture, so I took the camera. And then I kind of got so into doing this portrait for the story in this ancient Fiat Lux newspaper um, that I ended up not writing anymore. And I just fell back into photography and then after I graduated with my history degree, um, my parents were probably terribly worried because I went home with my history degree and didn't know what to do and got a job at a camera store in the mall. And I'm sure my parents were like, what? Like, I'm a first-gen college student and sure. what? <laughs> what is going so, on? Um, I spent that year studying for the GREs and working on pulling a photo portfolio together, and I applied to Syracuse. And I got into Syracuse, and when I was doing the journalism classes there, every single one of my journalism classes in the first story, my assignments, all came from people I met in the community who would come into the camera store. So there was a professor who had run an underground paper in the 60s, sure. but I met him and learned his story right from this camera job. Or um, I did a whole story on the last of the from scratch bakers in Syracuse. And I was very obsessed at this time about like the disappearing jobs of America and that there are no more mom and pop businesses. And then I meet this guy who came into the camera store and I call him and he invites me to come out at three in the morning when he's baking in East Syracuse. And he was actually relieved because he had just found out that he had Parkinson's disease and they want somebody wanted to buy that block on the building for probably development, sure. but it was the first time he would be able to entertain being able to retire. And so it's funny how when you're 24, you have like your ideas of the world. And then when you actually start interacting with people in your community, you realize how there's so many different sides yeah. to a story, yeah. right? So I had this job at a mall that, very much concerned my parents because they worked so hard to put me through college. And then it actually ended up helping me in grad school because every single person that I encountered became one of, I, I, they would tell their stories across the counter. And then later I would take my camera and tell their stories. Right. So there's kind of a neat. Yeah. And then I got an internship at the newspaper in Syracuse and everybody wanted this internship and the reason I got it out of all the other identical grad students who wanted this internship was because I had this one hour photo experience. Yeah. And usually the director of photography only hired people if they had weight, like busing table service, because it showed him you could understand deadlines, work with the community, work with other people. So then I kind of went to my dad, like, Harry gave me this job. It was because I had this one hour, right? Yeah. And my dad said, I don't, I, I think you got more out of that than 
I would have, right? So there's a life lesson in that too. Like you can get something out of any kind of experience that you have. And then because I worked at that job, I got all of my first camera equipment, Nikon, at 40% off the list price. How I ended up in New York City is there was a professor who would fly up to teach teach us like on Fridays. And she looked at my portfolio and said, you have to try coming to New York. So I ended up a freelance assistant in Manhattan. And then um, I kind of got weirded out. Like at the newspaper, you could see where the image ended up. You could see what people chose, but it was kind of like you're doing job after job after job and it's just going out in the world. And sometimes you'd see a tear sheet or, but you wouldn't really see. I had kind of I had been filing at TV Guide one day a week, like just in case freelance, you know, slowed down. And that week somebody quit. And so, (laughs) and then that was super weird because I'm holding this job offer, riding the path train back to Hoboken. And I'm thinking, do I give up assisting? Do I give up? And then I'm like, health insurance is nice. Seeing where the final picture, oh, and I'm going back and forth. And these two people are sitting on the subway next or the path next to me. And one had been a photo assistant for years. And the other one was just starting out and schlocking all the stuff from the rental studio back to Hoboken to bring back into the city for an early morning shoot. They were having this whole conversation. And the woman was kind of like, oh, I'm a photographer now, but if I had to do it all over and every single thing she listed was stuff that I was kind of like, oh, I so I thought, what am I waiting for, locusts or horsemen? I'm going to try this photo editing thing. And I did that. Um, I, I started spending more time in Pennsylvania on the weekends with people who had moved away from the city. Yeah. And I had a super frustrating day in Manhattan, and I saw this job at Rodale in the Lehigh Valley. And I applied online, and I thought, well, you'll feel like you did something. And then they called and will you relocate? Yes. And two and a half weeks later, I was living in Pennsylvania. And that was 2003. Yeah. <laughs> and then I ended up switching to work at Organic Gardening Magazine, which was, it's almost like a meditation, that kind of photography. Um, still life, garden shots, stuff. Um, and similarly, maybe the Incredible Hulk is like my alter ego, like I'm mild-mannered until I get irritated, but then all it does is propel my career forward uh, <laughs> because I had a bad day there. And my friend that works at Lehigh had written me on, I think, like Pinterest at the time. Yeah. And she said, oh, this job's been open all summer. We're kind of moving into a candidate phase. You should apply for it. And I'm kind of like, very well, then I shall apply. And the more I started talking to the people about the kind of work they do at Lehigh, I'm like, oh, I'm actually going to be really bummed if I don't get this job. And then I got it. So, <laughs> so like in a nutshell, my career has been getting grumpy and then doing something that leads me to creative growth and better things. Yeah, that's awesome. And (laughs) it it follows such an artistic path as well. It really does. So you'd mentioned photo editing. And given your career has has spanned a few decades now, I'd love to hear about how in your experience, photo editing and technology have changed over time. Oh, yeah. So when I I was working at the magazines, it was film. We would do film shoots and we would have... Um, if somebody wasn't available for a shoot because it was TV guide, you would call in stock images, but that was kind of another form of learning because you would call in 10 or 12 photo shoots of a celebrity 
So you would see 10 or 12 different styles of photographers and stylists and locations. And it's all the same subject. Right. And it is a curated image, but you would call in and you would kind of see, whoa, here's like all these people who are the leading photographers right now and how they saw this person or how that art team. So it was it was a very stress free job in many ways. Like nobody died on the table today. Um, But you would see the way people would interpret this one subject. So that was very cool. Maybe it was a little easier too, because if you're looking at 12 slides or frames, you pick the top one or the top two from a shoot to pass along. And now it's bottomless, right? Um, I do like now we have keyword searchability, which makes a huge difference. Oh my goodness. And with how like Adobe Creative Suite and everything, things that would have gotten ditched because it would take too much airbrushing or work, right? You can you can fix like if it looks like something's coming out of someone's ear. Um, so you, so you have a different opportunity um, with that. When I was a photo editor at Rodale too, it was such a different kind of photography, and I had a hard time in that job interview yeah. because they're like oh, you work with celebrities and work sort of this health and wellness company. And I just made some joke about how I wanted to work there because Carrots didn't have publicists. (laughs) And so that kind of editing would be more like, is there, I don't, is this an invasive species or if like what, right? So I don't know. That was a good mental health change, I think. But I I think photo editing, um, now that you can do so much volume, right? If you're shooting not film, you can have 1,000 frames from a day that you need to edit and go through. So you can add a lot of time on the back end waiting through stuff, which I guess, again, goes back to... um, I think it goes back to thinking about what you want to say and making less work for yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think, too, you can do so much. We can do so much with our phones, and we can do so much with, like, the Sony mirrorless cameras on program are going to do a a pretty good job most of the time. But I think there's something to be said for working with 35-millimeter film, watching a couple of YouTube videos if you don't have access to some sort of class and just teaching yourself about what goes into that because it, it will only help you develop your voice. Yeah. Whereas if you can take 10,000 pictures, you can almost drown yourself out without figuring out what you're trying to say. Oh, definitely. And so when you, we were talking a little bit earlier about like the back end thing of production, yeah. like if you take 10 seconds to make it right in the frame because you were paying attention enough in the moment to realize that xyz might be distracting then you save yourself hours on the back end oh my goodness yes i don't know if you run into that oh oh all the time i mean just that term we'll fix it in post is a joke within the film and (laughs) photography community and i live by that it's like most (laughs) most of my freelance work is not editing our own stuff that we shoot it's editing the mistakes that other people have made on set and are now like I, I just don't have it in me to edit this. Can you please do this? <laughs> like, yes, that's fixable and preventable. You could just pause. Yeah. Just pa- like, pause. And I, 
I do it to myself often too if I get nervous or if I get in a hurry or I'm or if my phone is blowing up while I'm trying to be at a photo shoot, sure. I'll make kind of a dumb exposure or frame something that, oh, no, that looks like it's coming out of the person's neck. Sure. But I, I think that's why I try to spend my off hours time kind of puzzling out like little still life scenes or people list photography, yeah. right? Yeah. Because then it's a way of... Um, just it is like focusing when I'm like when I would work at the garden magazine we would if we have a cover try you have I mean, we know that the headline the masthead right the decks you have to leave space and you'd have the camera like on tripod and then sometimes you'd be kind of looking like oh is this leaf dead or is there a spider on that or do we want to turn this um but you're not thinking about all the emails you haven't answered and you're not thinking about anything else except what's in that tiny frame. And then you can kind of move like a little to the left, a little to the right, and it looks like a completely different photo. And when you stand up from the tripod and look around, um, I'm sure that's what some people can feel like when they do yoga or, right? Because it's almost meditative. Yeah, Yeah, and it's, it's incredible too, thinking about, how a camera and a lens and what you see through the viewfinder can even change what you're seeing in real life, something like bug photography on flowers, right? And I'm using a 85 millimeter macro lens. What I'm seeing through the viewfinder is very different than what I'm sitting and seeing in real life. And it's it's incredible how, how a, a camera, in, in some cases, can help you see the world around you in a completely different way like yeah like i used to do freelance for a garden catalog company and they would have um you'd have to show they would call it the product right it would be like vegetables we have the peas on the trellis and it's just this tangled knot and vines and if you move around it enough and find the two that are in a nice place where there's not a big gaping daylight behind that makes like a distracting white spot in the center of the picture and you find this like moment and then you do the F28 or F1.2 and everything else disappears behind it. It's kind of like you found the thing to highlight or pull out. And I think when we were talking earlier about um, using photography as a way of connection and stuff too, there have been amazing moments where if someone is, is like uncertain of how they look or they don't, they they aren't feeling particularly like being in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, I had a I had a photo shoot a couple months ago and I think the person forgot that they were supposed to have the photo shoot and they came running and they were late and they were distracted and I, I oh, we can reschedule it. No, no, I'm here now, I'm here now. And I looked, I showed the back of my camera after I got the light where I wanted it and everything. I shoot a lot of daylight and she looked at the back of the camera and she said I'm pretty and then she said oh I mean that's a very pretty picture I'm like you're allowed to feel pretty in the picture but it kind of the way that the camera and the light hit her and it changed the way she was feeling about herself that day and that doesn't always happen sometimes people will look at the picture and be like I want to use this one from 20 years ago (laughs) um so I mean there's there's both sides like that but but the fact that someone was visibly frazzled and running late, but decided to go through anyway. 
and then the way that I saw them made them feel better about themselves is yeah. kind of an amazing moment when that can happen. Oh my goodness, yeah. 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 I I've had a couple usually that's when I'm shooting a subject, I prefer to shoot my wife, Elizabeth. And it, it's amazing just because of the connection that we have with each other, just the the intimacy that I can get in those photos that I I have a difficult time reaching with some other subjects that I've tried to work with in the past. Well, because you have built up this whole trust and connection yeah. with each other, and yeah. then you can see how that grows, or you might be, she might be more willing to show you, like, if I'm grumpy or frustrated or I'm just me. Yeah. And it's it's not, I mean, when, when people are taking my picture sometimes, I'm like, oh, is my smile awkward? Is there something in my tooth? What? A, and yeah. that's the internal loop that I have. Yeah. And I try to pop that in other people when I'm taking their picture. I'm also really, I'm with my irreverence can be good at making people laugh or crack up. But then sometimes, oh, tell me your research. And it'll be this super heavy topic. And I have all these frames where the person's kind of laughing with their eyes closed. And it's this beautiful moment where it's like, oh, that's what it's like to spend time in the room with that person. And then their research is super heavy. You're like, okay, wait, shake it off, relax your face. We got we to gotta try that again. But then yeah. sometimes those frames after that laugh there's still a light or a life in the person's eyes sure. uh, that weren't there before. But, yeah, it's, it's also good to know where you're going to use the pictures and yeah. what, what message. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, context plays such a huge portion. How how has those changing contexts with, like, throughout your career influenced your your ability to take photos and plan them out because um, going from something like a curated magazine with individuals used on something like the cover to um, like a gardening magazine where it may be interspliced with text that's more advertisement based versus something like a newspaper that would be more doc like documentation based like how how did each of those scenarios kind of change your mindset through photography over the years when i first started at lehigh after being at the garden magazine where it'd be like my, my most deeply satisfying thing to try to photograph in a garden is like if you can get a bee lifting off a flower in the air with all the pollen on their legs oh my and it's right because it's something that they're they fly erratically and yeah. they will lift up and it's macro photography right yeah. so there's a lot that you have to be paying attention to and when you if you can get that it's so satisfying oh, right yeah. and then but then i tend to think of that as very meditative and controlled even though you really have no control over the bee or which way they're going to go yeah. or if the wind is blowing and then when I started at Lehigh, it was Spirit Week. And uh, on campus, there's this thing called the Eco Flame, um, which replaced the bonfire. So it's like a the band will go through the first four hours of this day before the game and interrupt people's classes. So you can email them and say, here, I have this test in sure. this auditorium. And the band will come through. And that was a lot different than standing with a tripod in this set, right? So you're marching around with the band and I'd be like, there's a moment, but I blurred it. Uh, and then my head, I would think, 
like I have telepathy or whatever, I'd be like, do it again, do it again, do it again. And in locking in on the moment that I missed, I would miss like four more moments and I would get incredibly stressed out. And it took me, I think, three months of being in this different job space to be like, well, if you paralyze yourself, you're going to miss more moments. And so it was almost you had to give up a little bit of a sense of control. I mean, you, sure. I had no control over the bee or the pump, right, or whatever. Yeah. So that's kind of a different context because it's like, whoa, it's life. It's happening, right? Yeah. Um, coming from the sort of newspaper internship and going to the very curated uh, celebrity thing, I kind of loved that because you were allowed to move the water bottle off the set or you could sort of build the fact that you could build sets and um, prop houses. So you could go into these amazing warehouses in Manhattan and just rent props. And so I think that appealed to the uh, historian part of me. Like, whoa, you have all of these incredibly vintage microphones and we're going to this place to take pictures of a guy with red curtains and a spotlight, almost this noir style. You could kind of build like anything that you saw in a movie or TV. You could pull all the pieces in Manhattan and make it feel like a nod to that world. Um, That's a very different context. And then it it gets very draining. I think it becomes a lot when you have celebrities who have opinions and photographers who have opinions and art directors. And you're kind of like, I'm sitting in a cubicle in one of the most expensive places in the world. (laughs) And I'm setting up photo shoots in London first thing in the morning. And I'm hanging out until nine at night because photo shoots are happening in Los Angeles on TV show sets. And I haven't seen daylight and I miss trees. So I think maybe I immerse so extremely in a place that when I get that incredible Hulk moment, it's like, oh, I'm ready for a different context. I'm ready to, I don't know, exercise a different part of this creative muscle. I don't know. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. And and that's that's one thing working here at Steel Pixel Studios. I I do love the variety in context. And in addition to doing photography and videography, we're a full service marketing company, right? And so I love sitting down with our clients and talking about what is the context that this is going to be used in? How can we make sure that we're maximizing whatever the medium that this is going to be published in, how it's going to be used and and shoot for that from the beginning. Like, I, I want to know, it, could this picture be exclusively for social media? If so, I, I know that we can shoot with uh, like way, like we can shoot way more frames in a second, can be a little bit more uh, like free flowing and and not have to worry about it being just like the perfect single image that needs to be billboard quality or something like that. And it's it changes everything. And sometimes I think people might not be aware yeah. of all. It's not you're not just taking that one picture. It is. It's like the context in which you're going to use. It's everything because, yeah, billboard quality or is it going to go, do you need it so it can go in a magazine or if it's a social media post, you could have more grit or grain or something that makes it, you could be more authentic maybe 
with it. I mean, there's just, even the way we have all those different platforms and mediums have kind of their own little language to it. You know, like, I mean, there's hilarious memes about that, but it'll be like, you know, your Facebook picture, your Twitter picture, your Instagram. But it's kind of like that in the in the work that we do. And I, and I think sometimes people have an idea of what they need to convey, but then where we can help them is by listening and asking some more questions so we can help help them com- convey that in ways they may not have even known were possible. You've talked about working with teams as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure most of the photographers that would be listening to this show are likely not super familiar with working in a photography team, working with someone like a creative director. So I'd love, I'd love to hear your, um, just about that whole experience of working with a team, working with uh, like a hairdresser and possibly a, like a, a coordinator or something like that as well. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because there's so many different levels. Like my one friend who came from newspapers only, yeah. she sometimes feels protective of me and she'll say, well, why do you have the art director or the creative director telling you what to do? Uh, don't they trust you? And it's like, no, it's not. It's not about trust. It's a it's a true collaboration. Yeah. They they have an idea. You can bring your idea to it. And sometimes when you're puzzling that out. Yeah. So um, just as a like quick example, last week I was in a physics lab uh, with my art director. I was like, I connected with these students and this professor. They're doing really cool research. I honestly listened to a point of the stuff that they're building on this experiment, but I got distracted when I found out that there are fiber optic cables that glow green when you shine a light through them, or if you put the UV light on it, it will be purple. And I thought, we could do such cool stuff, right? So I brought her to this photo shoot. And the cool thing about this physics lab is they're incredibly collaborative. They do a lot of DIY stuff with the way that they build their tools and they're working. I mean, if it's like a scientific piece of equipment, it might be $500, but they're using drying racks from Target to wrap the cables around, which they can then collapse and use that lab space for something different. So they're super used to collaboration. Yeah. And we went in and we're in the dark and the first couple pictures with this UV light, we have, um, they're, they're kind of leaning their faces down next to it. It's like, this could kind of feel like a bad 1980s album cover, but let's just go with it. And then they started popping in and out of the frame, like the professor, the student. And then we got the fiber optic cables out that they're building into these panels. Mm-hmm. And then you could suddenly see green and purple light. And then I pulled out of my bag my trusty two uh, $4 CVS flashlights. And we have a long exposure on the tripod. And then Beth and I are painting the light in on the student's face. Oh, that's amazing. And the really cool thing is if you're using like the new Pixel phone that the professor had, everything in the room is this really cool blue light, including the student. You see all this ambient blue light. But then on... Even on the mirrorless camera, it's still slightly different technology. So it's kind of like an old DSLR and you're shining the light and the flashlight and you're painting in. So it's this room of darkness that lights up these colors. And then the flashlight on the face is his face is actually skin toned. And it was the way that one student was holding the the, uh, cables first. 
And then someone holding the light said, I want to turn. And then the way they held the cables, it was even cooler. So we put the original student back in and then built this really cool picture. And at the end, when the lights came on, I feel like we all looked like excited Muppets because we just collaborated together to make that happen. And we started out in this super cheesy album cover feel. But it's kind of like if you're playing a little and if people will go along with it, you can really get to an amazing place. And I think that if you're in a newspaper, you wouldn't, unless it was a photo illustration, it would be more documenting what it looked like. And you might go in on your own and there's a value to that real documentation. And in this other sense of collaborating with an art director, you have someone with you to, it's like words and music. It's like you're bouncing ideas off each other and it might not work, but when it does, it's it's so satisfying. And you didn't even feel like you worked all day, right? When I worked in Manhattan and I was 25, the photo director at that magazine was amazing because she would put all of us, we were all, you know, associate photo editors. She would put all of us on these big cover shoots as a way of training us. So she would teach you how to take your business card and a letter into like Barney's or a department store and explain that you had a had a photo shoot coming up and the the letter that you would have would be you would borrow clothes for the photo shoot in exchange for credit in the magazine and then ensuring that if something is damaged the magazine would pay for it we had to get really good at knowing all these different parts in the city that might make a a cool location that you and a lot of times if it was a bar or restaurant or the Bowery Opera House or something like that you could rent it as a location during the day we got really good at learning how to research permits and we got really good at learning how to make it look like you weren't on a photo shoot (laughs) (laughs) like no tripod on the ground right um very familiar we 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 would learn how to book catering and find even then even you know uh, we would learn how to you would have to book catering and if people had food sensitivities and stuff which outside of Manhattan 20 years ago that didn't come up quite as much sure. as it does now that um so you 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 would be doing all that you would be calling in photographer portfolios sending them to the publicist you would have to navigate some tricky situations sometimes and um she trusted us I mean, the worst would be if something didn't go quite right and you would get a post-it note on your desk that would say, how did this happen, H? Yeah. <laughs> you, you would know that you would you would have to go work it out. But to be just out of school and in this world and to be given that sort of throwing you right into it so you learn is is kind of an amazing experience. Being an artist and a photographer who is based here in the Lehigh Valley, what do you think one of the biggest things that being in the Lehigh Valley has taught you? I think being in a not busy, bustling city, um, there is a sense of community here that kind of reminds me of the Syracuse area. Or um, It's funny. I volunteer at this local nonprofit, Healing Through the Arts, but... Every year they do this juried art show. And so I volunteer and I do photos of the art that go into the show, but then I also serve on their board. And what I love is every year they pick three to four local artists in every different 
you could be like an art therapist or a painter or right and then they bring them together to do the judging and so watching that i've been working with them i think 11 years now and so you see all the different artists that are in this area they usually have someone from a medical profession and then they'll have other artists for coming together to do the pics and seeing the stuff that resonates with different people um, and seeing the work that the different people that we choose to be judges yeah. is it's kind of it's kind of been an amazing thing and and um, keeping in touch with some of them or watching the conversations that they have is inspirational and it's such a different mix right yeah. so it'll if it's like um, Dr. Crow from the art gallery and then Doug Bame from the Banana Factory and then an art therapist coming together and seeing all of their different approaches to what resonates with them and just watching that. It is kind of like being a fly on the wall or listening to a podcast to see them yeah. to see them work. And I think it kind of helped me get to know the Lehigh Valley a little more. The art that comes in by the students yeah. and then the people who are art professionals in some way coming together. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. For being an area that isn't at the size and capacity of New York City, it's it always amazes me the variety of artists that we have here. We have so many artists of different mediums and interests and backgrounds and so much of that can be attributed to the history of the Lehigh Valley and the immigration history that it has with Bethlehem Steel especially. Um, but, oh my goodness, it is so eclectic here. Right? Yeah. I, when I first started working at Lehigh, we, had, we worked with, um, they had been using three different local freelance photographers. Yeah. And as I was a photo editor slash photographer. That was my official job title when I started. And it was really fun because each of them would say, oh, I want to meet, I want to meet up with you, let you know who I am, let's go to lunch. And it was really fun that one photographer, we went to Deja Brew, and I had never been to Deja Brew, and kind of that coffee house feel and seeing the, that there's this film festival that exists and how the films come from all over the world yeah. was like, whoa and then another photographer would say oh let's go out on the north side and you're kind of walking to the restaurant and be like oh well this famous writer used to be from right around the corner or let's go oh let's go get coffee at the joint and see and you would see the way the artwork or the store displays or it's just it's there's a really rich and vibrant uh and it, it on both sides of the river yeah. to to find out and i i mean i had Worked in Emmaus for eight years, and I think I just missed out on a lot of time. I think I came here for Music Fest before that, and maybe Celtic Classic. And it, it was, so I, I associated the art with like music here. And then when I started working with Healing Through the Arts, which came through a connection at Rodale, I started to see like oh, sculptors and glass blowers and painters and oh, this man does sculpture that plays kinetic sculpture. It plays sound and music. And you're kind of like, this was in my backyard all this time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a very similar experience. I I grew up here in the Lehigh Valley. Um, but for most of my life, I had an interest in the arts, photography, and film. But 
I, I didn't really think about the Lehigh Valley as a place to be for that. And I went to, went to school, then I lived in New York for a while. And the whole time I'm like, wow, I love this, but I want this to be my local community. Like, I want this to be where I'm from, and I'm, I'm proud to be where I'm from, and I'm sure stuff like this is going on. And so when I finally came back home and started the studio, and it was just incredible seeing seeing the variety here and and just seeing how everybody's interacting and collaborating and one thing especially that i love about photography in in comparison to some other art mediums is that photographers love to collaborate and it's so easy for photographers not necessarily to just see each other as competition like in a couple other art mediums um but really understand the need and the time and the place for each person's voice. It's like you can have five photographers at the same place and none of them will be doing the same thing. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> and you can get, you can kind of get, um, you know, like if you're driving on a long stretch of highway and you yeah. kind of like zone out. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, we it was back when Instagram was a little different and they had like the Instagram meetups. So we had one on campus and IG Bethlehem came and these other local photographers. I just remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to go into Packer Chapel. I've been in there 10 million times. It's super dark. And then this guy came out and he had taken this picture where he had stretched out his stomach on the floor and he got the little old tiles in the floor and then the vaulted ceilings. And I just remember thinking like, I'm such a jerk. I can't like I you can always learn to see things differently. Um, And that was such a good reminder that we all have a different a different way of looking at the stuff. Like if we were to take pictures in here right now, we would both it would look like two totally different rooms, you know. And when right after grad school. Well, I guess it was when I left New York. A lot of my friends and I ended up from Syracuse in Hoboken and Brooklyn and we all lived there at the same time and traded assisting jobs and stuff like that and then when we all kind of moved away to different parts of the country we were like hey in grad school we had this assignment and it was called same object and I think we got like a piece of copier paper and we all had to photograph this piece of copier paper and it was amazing to see how many different ways that got interpreted like mine I stapled to a log and I photograph shadow projections on it like it was a sort of nature drive-in movie theater and somebody else got there sopping wet and hung it over a drying rack and it, it was just it, but it was like a piece of paper sure. but the sky's the limit right yeah. so we started this thing I don't know why we called it same object Pennsylvania for a while I guess because I was in Pennsylvania sure. um, but we would it would be like once a week we would all turn in it would be like garbage or a shoe or everybody would take a turn picking a different subject yeah. and and it was so cool to see how as we lived in different places and experienced different things we all saw that same object in such a completely different way and i think i think even here like like look out right now like the pictures people post from music fest yeah it's like whoa right yeah there's so many different so. voices oh my goodness i i had an assignment in college well it, it wasn't a 
traditional assignment, I was talking with my professor about how I was having a hard time seeing all these different angles simultaneously and wanting to get a little bit more familiar with it. And he's like, go down to the props department, ask him for a chair, put it in a room where there's nothing else. And I want you to turn a thousand pictures of that chair into me by the end of next week. And I'm like, all right, all right let's do it. <laughs> and I had that number and I, I got a thousand different angles of that chair. And I eventually, I'm like, here you go. He's like, I, I don't actually need to see it. He's like, you've taught yourself it already. And that's, it's such a testament to photography being something that comes naturally, but also something that as you practice it, you can use the world of photography and all the different principles that make it up to your advantage and to, to explore things in a way you never would have even thought possible. Yeah. Do you, How do you find, like, so you like taking 35 millimeter and I like do. neon pictures and yeah. stuff. Do you find that that recharges you for your day job stuff? It, it really does. And I... So most of what I do during the day is video related and I love I love using 35 millimeter um, just because it, it it livens up whatever room I'm in. People are like, oh, you can't just take a thousand of that. They're like, I don't want to mess it up. And I'm like, no, I, I want to capture you doing what you'd be doing naturally. Like I I love just the conversations that it can start. Um, and I love experimenting with different film, and I, anytime I go to a thrift store, if I find a 35 millimeter camera, no matter what quality it is, I pick it up, oh, so and cool. I try not to shoot the same camera twice. Like I have wait, that's amazing. I have so many different cameras um, that are all like 35 millimeter trash, They're just not the worst of the worst, but the glass is nothing particularly special, but. They all have different lens parallax. The quality of what you're seeing changes. And it really comes down to what that camera, what that film, and what me in that environment can collaborate to make. And it's a forced collaboration, but I, I, I love it so much. Oh, do you have a favorite body? I do. I actually I got a panoramic 35mm camera. Oh. a while ago and I did a whole series of landscapes in Colorado that I'm very proud of the way that they turned out um, but that's that's part of a whole mixed media series that I'm currently still working through oh. but uh, yeah I took those and then I collected um, vegetation and wildlife from each station that I had photographed and oh. then I had pressed them and then I took photos of those turned them into an adjustment layer and I'm actually going to get those either printed onto the the frames glass or vinyl wrapped onto it oh yeah to go over top of the photo that I took that is an amazing so, project yeah I'm super excited about it I still have my first camera in that high school photo class. Yeah. Is a Canon AE1 from the used camera store in Seneca Falls, New York. Oh, my that's mom awesome. drove me from a Syracuse suburb over to Seneca Falls because she heard about the village camera shop. Yeah. And it has the guitar strap uh, style strap. And I still have that same. It still works. It's. <laughs> 
So I have that and my Hasselblad, the Nikon film camera I gave away. That was amazing, though, because as things switched to digital, the Nikon lenses worked on the DSLRs. Yeah. Canon had the bayonet mount, and it yep. did not. <laughs> I I learned that the hard way. I I my dad is a private investigator so we always had cameras lying around the house and eventually when he got me my first dslr he's like oh and here's a bunch of canon lenses and you're so excited and, and then you're like i'm like none oh. of these fit so then i got an, a lens adapter for it but it was not one that had glass in it so it turned it into a macro tube <laughs> Which has like some limited cool use. It, and Yeah, and I, I started shooting macro because those are the lenses that I had and yeah. I love doing it. But um, yeah, it was <laughs> a very different experience. But I, lo I love um, I love kind of coming from the era in which I did things. We had to learn how to use the studio lights, like the old Speedatrons yeah. and tungsten lights with barn doors and yeah. 4x5 and 8x10 view cameras. <laughs> and we had to learn how to hold the edge of the film. with, And you could even, the notches on that 4x5 film, you could tell like what film brand and stuff it was because they all had different notches and getting them loaded. And you had to learn that. And digital was starting at the same time. And I mean, super grainy digital and everything. Sure. But it but it was kind of a fun time to be in New York City because both worlds existed. And it used to be with film shoots, they would all have different emulsion numbers. Yeah. So uh, the one photographer I assisted when I first got to New York, she always shot with Fujifilm. And if you would get, come to the end of an emulsion, you'd have to be consistent through the whole job, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I would always come home with like two paper shopping bags with handles of leftover film from odd job lots. Oh, that's awesome. Right? Because you had to have a consistency yeah. to it. But then with digital, everything that used to stress me out about shooting film, especially if it's like daylight studio photography, right? color meter if the color changes or if it or if a shoot goes long and you have to then pull out lights to try to make it match the daylight at the time of the day yeah. but then with digital you had so much more freedom to control color temperature or to control the light especially when they as noise got less and less and less yeah. but that was a huge shift but i think that w w those of us that came in that time there's kind of a an advantage from having to go through all of that super extremely technical stuff because it kind of informs the way you approach. Um, I mean, there's different advantages to every era that we come sure, in, but I sure. think that that one really helped me. I think that I think ha it's almost like speaking a couple different languages, right? You have yeah. to you you had to know film and how to pull Polaroids and how how to coat the Polaroids and how to do all that and run a color temperature meter and yeah. load the four by five film for like these weird Neutrogena ads where you'd have to, <laughs> right? And you had to be aware of how to do color correction in Photoshop and make prints on an Epson scanner. Yeah. And my newspaper job with uh, image color correction for the presses helped me when I was in Manhattan too. It helped me get um, work in studios where they were trying to make Epson print portfolios. Yeah. I was like, oh, happen to know how to color correct in Photoshop. So that was kind of a neat time for me to be there because it was kind of like the old world and the new world were happening at the same time. Yeah. Also, I have always perennially this like 
wee era about me, aura about me. And I would have to, in the old days, deliver a Polaroid film to an art director like at Chanel or something from a studio down in Chelsea. And you like go up and you're, I'm like staring out the window like, oh my gosh, I'm staring out at Central Park right now. And then they would come in and kind of the lady would get taking the film to the art director to sign off on it would come back out and be like, oh yeah, that's Central Park. Oh, are you new in New York? And even after six months, I would be like, yeah. And then she'd say, wait right here. And she'd walk around and pick up like samples of the makeup. And I'd go home with this little bag of stuff. And then my friends who had kind of grown up in the Brooklyn area and were all much more cooler than I was, they would kind of be like, you're the worst because (laughs) you keep getting this like Pollyanna, like everyone wants to (laughs) pat you on the head and send you with souvenir goodies. <laughs> oh man well speaking of blending the old and the new you you brought a photo with today um called glitch yeah and that is a double exposure it's nine it's in <sighs> camera nine yeah d- nine frames in oh, camera double like i don't know what is that like a nipple exposure yeah. a nine uh, <laughs> multi-exposure yeah yeah that was uh, with my creative director, who is a fine, a fine arts portrait painter by schooling, yeah. and I going into a situation, and we're kind of feeling stale, and it's it's like sometimes you could just do the bare minimum, and you know it's going to be, a, but then you will die creatively inside. Sure. So he said, "Oh." I know you like doing double exposure with Polaroids. I know you like doing double exposure when you, like single portraits or something. What if we tried this thing? Like how many can that camera do? And it was the Canon Mark IV and you could go up to nine in camera. And the fun thing is I didn't have a tripod and you couldn't see what it was going to look like. So you had to kind of morph. And he's like, what if we just did nine portraits of me? And we kind of puzzled out where he might be and... He's like, don't don't stress about if you ha- can't line anything perfectly up. And it ended up looking almost like um, those old photo projects where you would cut a picture apart and weave it back together. Yeah. So it has this like textile kind of feel or like if your video camera went on the blink or yeah. something. Yeah. And, and it's kind of what I love about it is if you're going to be at your day job like eight to ten hours a day, you have to have these moments to have fun and try different things because otherwise you just get stale and then you're not good to yourself or anyone else. So I love when he and I go out and um, sometimes I'm good cop and he's weird cop on a photo shoot. And sometimes we'll just walk through a building and look at random stuff or we'll find someone with a cool style. And that day we were like, oh, these chairs look kind of cool. These chairs look like they could be in like a business magazine or something. And then we we sort of patched that together. It was the only one we took too, which I also love. It wasn't like we went back and tried to make it perfect. Um, it's just about the importance of of playing and and texture and not being afraid to see what you might get. Yeah, totally. Well, so we are a primarily auditory program. And so one thing that we like to try and implement is audio description. And so I don't have the piece pulled up on my phone right now, but I would love to insert an audio description of this piece. Like it's one, it's one frame, right? But it's really nine portraits of a man. And sometimes, so, 
So think about it if you saw, I think that day we were scouting a location to do a group portrait, but we didn't want to do the traditional group portrait where there's two people lined in a row. We were, and so we were kind of like, well, what would it look like if one person was sitting here and he has his elbow on his knee and he's kind of like, I'm the leader of this group. And then it's like, oh, I'm kind of shy. And then he will go and stand completely straight and uncomfortably. And then he'd say, you ready? You ready? And then he'd go and he would kind of pull on these different personas. And we had not met any of the people that we were about to photograph. So he was kind of just kind of like sweeping generalizations about anyone you might encounter in any group. And so he's, he's, um, in all of the places at once when you look at the picture. And and you can kind of see that there's a person in it. But it's just really interesting to look at because the chairs are kind of blurred. But it's not it's not really jarring. Yeah. It's like the he has blue on mostly. And then the chairs are kind of a warm orange, which is kind of like your sound things in here. Um, but it, but it, it's kind of a neat mix of color and texture. Yeah. And what I also love about it is it's not like we were going to do anything with that except enjoy looking at it and, and puzzling it out. So I think he's in nine different spots because that's wow. that's the capacity. Yeah. And it, you can do it as a setting if you're shooting on live view where you can see where stuff overlays. Mm -hmm. But don't do that sometimes. Yeah. Like if you're taking totally. digital pictures, don't look don't look through the shoot from the hip or pretend it's a 35 millimeter yeah. and that you can't see what the outcome is like use gaffer's tape and tape a little something over the screen and only look through the viewfinder yeah and play with stuff like that totally totally how would you describe the primary colors of this this capture this capture i think like a like a rust orange and then like blue jean denim i remember right. he probably had a button down shirt on that's maybe blue but I just feel like it's like worn denim and then like rust leather of the couch. Well, pleather. It's probably pleather. Uh, those couches. Nice. And what what year was this taken in? Probably twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. All right. It was before the. It was the before times. It was before the <laughs> lockdown, but not terribly before. Yeah. Maybe twenty nineteen. It. The description of this piece and and seeing it like an hour or so ago, I. It reminded me a lot of this this idea of time passing and that the environments that we interact with, if they could talk, they could describe so many different things and so many different motions that people have. And even when the people go away, what they did in those environments will always be there. Yeah. It's like it's like when they always have the like if these walls could talk yeah. or it's kind of like, oh, is that guy? I mean, it's all the same guy, but it's like, is that one preoccupied about where his missing keys are? Or is this one going through a devastating divorce? Or is this one about to announce that he's putting in his two-week notice? Yeah. And it's all, or all of those things could be 10,000 things that were flowing through his head at that moment, right? Because it, it is kind of, so the glitch is that kind of like, that feeling when you look at it of almost like, right? Yeah, yeah very much so. In, in that same vein, um, in the second to last episode of Breaking Bad, there is a shot where a character is sitting at a bar, right? And the whole entire scene is shot from the perspective of his whiskey glass. That is amazing. He leaves the bar and these individuals that are looking for him come in and they leave. They couldn't find him. Then the cops come in 
get a statement and leave. The only thing that actually knows in parentheses what happened is the whiskey glass that this entire scene was shot from. Brilliant. <laughs> and it, like we were talking about before with, um, with just these, these different artifacts that can be left behind. And it's like, what did they see? And what did, like, what can they feel and understand? And if they could talk, just the stories that they could tell. Right? Yeah. And, and with that whiskey glass thing, too, you're kind of like, oh, oh. This guy had a bad day because he's slamming me down and knocking me around. Or yeah. like this person who's clearing the table is very gentle. On yeah, my hands, right. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but oh, yeah. I think it is that fascination with, um, yeah, like the things people leave behind. Or a lot of times when I'm taking pictures, like say if you weren't able to visit for work, or you weren't able to visit campus, or when I do freelance work for the tourism boards and stuff in the area. Um, it's kind of like what gives people a sense of what it's like to stand in this room. And then if it's a portrait, I try to make it about what is it like to stand with this person? Can you get a sense of what it's like to spend time with them from the picture that I took? And then my whole childhood uh, studying the things on kitchen tables, it's kind of like, what do these objects tell us about the people who were in this space? Right? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having am, me. This was such a good conversation. I'm so glad we could talk. <laughs> but before we officially wrap up, would you mind telling people where they can find you? So I would say uh, .com, um it will be back uh, right now. It's got some very beautiful kid photography on it. But just as a reminder, check your domain and your hosting. <laughs> All you professionals who are busy, like all, every photographer I know is so busy, check your hosting as well as the domain. Um, but Instagram is um, CNU, first initial, last name. And that right now is a mix of like local farms and growing. And so you, you get a sense of Pennsylvania from that Instagram. So you can love photography or you can love visiting places around this area. So I would, I awesome. would say Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. For this episode's opportunity, Krista asked us to give a shout out to Lehigh University Art Gallery's What Matters Most. Over the past year, over 100 Lehigh students, faculty, and staff, as well as community members in Bethlehem, were asked what matters most. A broad range of topics were discussed, from protecting our environment to fighting racism to our individual and collective well-being. The contributors were asked to discuss these issues and then to select works of art from Lehigh's collection that helped us think more deeply about them. Rather than being illustrations of specific issues or even the central topic of concern to the artist, these selections are meant to expand, explore, and connect our idea about what matters most. Lehigh University Art Galleries invites you to visit this exhibition spanning five of their on-campus galleries as well as along the South Bethlehem Greenway. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, a Steel Pixel original series. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast.